0: Welcome back to Ag Watchers uh, with Matt Dalglish, myself, Andrew Whitelaw. Uh, we've got a guest here from uh, all the way from the sunny shores of the United Kingdom or uh, Great Brexit, depends on what you want to call it. Uh, Chris uh, Lawson is the um, head of fertilizers for CRU. The uh, reason we invited Chris along is that we wanted to have a uh, a bit of an independent view on the fertilizer market because from our point of view there's there's you know sometimes there can be a bit of misinformation in fertilizer and there's not a huge amount of you know really strong independent analysis and and that's what the guys at cru uh, are are focused on amongst other commodities which we will we will touch upon as well because i think that's quite interesting um so yeah it's it's early in the morning for chris uh, early in the evening for, for for us so chris hi thanks for uh, thanks for coming along again to the to the podcast and uh, does that intro suffice or do you want to add anything else
1: no that's a, that's a great intro Andrew. thanks very much for having me on again and uh, yeah great uh, great to chat looking forward to uh, another great conversation <laughs> well let's not go too far <laughs>
0: <laughs> you you've heard us before so it's something <laughs> So in terms of, Chris, I think that the one that we wanted to pick upon was, was a bit on, on urea. And, and last time we spoke was August. It uh, would, well, would have been last quarter anyway. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, urea is our biggest import uh, or our biggest uh, fertilizer that we use in Australia. So what is happening in, in the fertilizer market at, at a global level? What are we seeing?
1: Yeah, urea has been probably the most, I mean, it is naturally the most volatile uh, of the fertiliser markets that we cover here at CRU. Um, and that volatility is well and truly shone through uh, throughout 2020. Uh, last time we spoke, uh, we talked a lot about, you know, with the great global downturn due to COVID-19, there was a crash in Hydrocarbon prices, so oil prices, gas prices, uh, coal prices are all lower. Um, And that naturally pulls the cost of production for producing urea down. Um, And that should also naturally, with the way that market dynamics work, pull the price lower. Uh, And on an annualised basis, we still will see urea prices lower in 2020 compared to 2019, but probably not as low as what many people uh, have ex- have expected, and we've seen a fairly resilient urea market when it comes to demand. Uh, some of the big demand centres around the world, such as the United States and, and India of whole, have both had uh, really strong uh, years on an, on an ag production perspective, uh, so that's really uh, supported their demand and has helped to keep uh, those urea prices uh, propped up uh, well above those production cost levels
0: so in terms of so so what what's the price of urea at the moment and say what's the good benchmark to go off of like saudi arabia or
1: yeah so most of uh, most of the imported urea into australia comes from the arab gulf um so with the, the different benchmarks that we assess at CIU, um the the fob middle east price is um best to watch we think so November the average price was two hundred a bit over two hundred and sixty dollars a ton in FOB Middle East. That's US dollars, um, is it Chris? US dollars? That's in US dollars, yeah. Yeah. Um so you obviously want to convert that to Australian dollars at um, you know, perhaps twenty, thirty bucks on for for freight and unloading costs to, to get your uh land and Australian price. Yeah. So and what would that have been last year?
0: Probably about probably a little bit higher, so maybe forty dollars higher?
1: yeah a touch higher than that, a touch higher than that. Um, again, you know that's that's taking one month of um, of prices, and you know that that two hundred and sixty has actually uh, come up. we that price fall as low as uh, got close to two hundred dollars a ton in the middle of the year. Um, so that has come up quite a lot over the past uh, five or six months. um and that's really due down to um, that recovery, well, not a recovery, but that very strong demand in in places like India. Um, but also a, a recovery in some of those hydrocarbon prices. So we have seen gas prices start to increase from those very low levels from the beginning of the year, um, and that's helped to somewhat helped to, to push prices higher. And there's obviously, there's a, like if we
0: look, one of the things that we always like to reiterate is that a lot of commodities uh, tend to flow with one another, even though they might be completely different uses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so corn and ethanol and wheat all correlate extremely strong if you look at the futures of, of them what's is the, is the correlation of say natural gas and and urea would be strong
1: like pr- it's it, there is a correlation there it's not as strong as what many people expect um it, it does it's and it's a bit convoluted i could go into a very deep analytical hole here so i'll we'll try to keep it as high level as possible but if yeah, you, if you look you, at the middle you, you east... don't
0: you don't want to confuse matt yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: if if you look at places like the middle east which is producing lots of australia's urea they're paying a, a fixed gas price so they're they're no matter what's happening in the market they're paying you know they're paying a little bit more this year than what they were last year essentially uh, despite all the the kind of disruptions that's happened um, globally, but so so,
0: so so if you look to say European natural gas yeah. price, it's irrelevant largely because the Saudis are
1: paying a, a minimum, like a maximum price effectively. Yeah, it's or, or it? I mean it is there is still a it is it is still <clears throat> relevant because Europe generally pays more for its gas, well, significantly more for its gas, and is more on a kind of spot market price. And places like Europe are, you know, marginal producers of, of nitrogen products. So when those gas prices are too high, you'll see those European producers pull back from their production. And that's a way of kind of balancing the market. So it is still, there is still a relevance there. And that's where that kind of correlation comes from, uh, is is through those marginal producers. And that's why in the nitrogen market, we also track coal prices in China, because that's also another key Marginal producer, um, and yeah, that's kind of where the, the correlations from come from, and that's the, why we look at so many different uh, kind of energy feedstocks when we're thinking about urea markets.
2: Would it just um, I know years ago when I was trading currencies, you go through stages where when you've got a commodity, and I'm guessing that in the Fert space it might be similar that um, part, you know, part part of the time the commodity is driven by global events, and it's and it's true of currencies where. The uh, um, notion comes into favor, and that's mm-hmm. what drives. Like for some time, it might be interest rates, for example, are the driving force, and then and then six months later, it's global growth rates, and then mm-hmm. you know, and then another bit of time. And so, you, 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 even though all these things are relevant, there are times where in currencies, a certain a certain thing gets looked at more frequently because it's whether it's topical or whether it's just the, the thing of the moment. Is that true of Fert markets as well? When you've got so many competing things that can drive it, that, that sometimes one thing takes the, the kind of, you know, the box seat and, and really pushes it around or not necessarily?
1: Yeah, fertilisers are still uh, very much a sentiment-driven market. So when you when you see big macro events occur, um, you know, you will see prices somewhat react to that because traders will think, oh, you know, so one of the things we look at quite often is, uh, well, one of the things that often comes up in, in conversations about the fertiliser market is geopolitical tensions um lots of the world's fertilizer is produced in the middle east Uh, there's obviously uh, quite a lot of geopolitical tension there Uh, so you know when we see uh you know tensions in iran escalate for example um you know that can have a pretty big impact on nitrogen flows particularly Um, and yeah so so that's one of those big macro events that we watch out for uh, currency is is also a big driver. We we spend a lot of our time looking at what's happening in uh, different FX markets because again, that can have a huge impact on costs of production, uh, but also in you know affordability of, uh, of fertilizer as well. Uh, if if in a place like Brazil, they're you know importing just about all, not all of it, but a, a large majority of their fertilizer. So when they're currency devalues to the level that it has over the past twelve months, um, it makes their fertilizer more expensive. On the flip side, their the commodities that they're selling to the global market are a, a, a huge amount more valuable. And we've seen farmer returns in Brazil this year uh, go through the roof. And they are I would kind of hate to give it a loose term like this, but always printing money at the moment because of the, the surge in soybean prices, the surge in corn prices, uh, and the the weakness that we've seen in that Brazilian they are they can well, easily afford to pay that uh, increased cost for fertilizer. Mm. So I guess,
0: that's an interesting point, because I was actually thinking when you were talking, when Matt was asking the question, <clears throat> one of the Curious things is is obviously capacity to pay is is going to be a thing for for the fertilizer industry and any mm-hmm. industry if if your customer has the capacity to pay more well let's be honest you charge mm-hmm. more that's that's yeah. the and and I'm guessing from from and this is a is a guess but probably an educated guess is that the real thing that you guys will be most interested in is corn and beans. Because they are going to be the big drivers in terms of overall global fertilizer use. And I'm guessing what we've seen in the last probably three months, we've seen a pretty strong rise in in beans and and corn pricing, which mm-hmm. means that farmers have a higher capacity to pay, whether that's in in Brazil or whether that's in in the U.S. or 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 elsewhere. Yeah, but I guess so. That's one one for the the sort of the paranoid ones out there do we see a do we see a correlation of when corn prices go up or, or profitability of farmers go up because mm-hmm. cause is largely a proxy for profitability do mm-hmm. we see fertilizer prices rise in line with that or is that just a a bit, a bit like john it, deere a john deere header apparently people think you know harvesting yeah. goes up as as farmers become more wealthy is yeah. it
1: true don't know <laughs> It's, I mean, we, as as analysts, um, we, this is one of the debates we've had for a long time and people that were doing my job before me surely had this debate as well. We haven't been able to draw a kind of statistical, a strong statistical correlation with fertiliser prices and, and corn prices. However, again, you know, this is very much a, a sentiment driven market and the uh, those guys who are trading or producing fertilisers do track um, what's going on with farmer economics very, very closely. And they know that, you know, if a farmer like in the US this year is getting significantly higher corn prices, significantly higher soybean prices, they're also receiving huge government payouts for the different COVID relief funds and the different uh, trade disruption uh, subsidies that are being paid out. Uh, I mean, a US farmer is going to be a very happy person this year because, yeah, with the the yields that they're going to be getting, um, with the prices they're going to be receiving and with those government payouts, Um yeah we see fertilizer at the most affordable levels it's been in you know pretty much over a decade um because in spite these kind of recent increases in fertilizer prices it's still very very affordable and that means that if you're a producer of fertilizer you're pretty unlikely to drop your prices
0: in terms of like suppl- sentiment and supply and demand like i remember reading when i first started looking at fertilizer a report from might be an FAO somebody basically saying that there was a huge stream between sort of 2015 and 2020 of of urea production coming mm-hmm. coming coming on stream during that time. Mm-hmm. What what is the like just very quickly? But what is the sort of overall sort of supply and demand balance sheet? Are things tightening or is it sort of still? Because I know the prices have been pretty low for the last couple of years because of mm-hmm. excess supply, but is mm-hmm. that pets are changing much or
1: yeah we so we we think we look at commodities in kind of super cycles in in cycles of kind of 25 30 40 years um and you have those peaks and troughs and fertilizers is is still very much in the trough of that super cycle at the moment And a big reason for that is that that wave of capacity that you, you mentioned there, Andrew, which uh, yeah has has come into the market, we have seen things tighten somewhat uh, over the last couple of years, uh, particularly in in the nitrogen front. However, we do for urea. I think this is this is an important thing to mention. Whilst we do see prices higher now, and we see prices you know, generally moving higher over the next four or five months, um, there is a fairly large whack of capacity that's coming into that urea market next year uh which is going to uh pull prices lower in this in the second half of the year and um you know keep things really uh you know within that super cycle trough for a, for a good another couple of years yet
0: and and there's just there is some new capacity coming on in Australia as well i believe with uh, I saw one it was some some pretty sort of claims of extremely low urea prices i can't remember who it was it was some some company out of south australia up near Wyala or somewhere
1: oh yes uh, that would be i think lee creek energy you might be referencing there that's that that's story. the one uh, my 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 dad uh, sent me that story from the stock journal when he saw it so uh like <laughs> my, my family keeping keeping it out for for of stories for me. Um so so, so, stock, so Stock and Land got it before you guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um no we we have been uh we have been tracking that project closely. It is it's it's still um in know what we would class as a speculative project. Uh it doesn't have the, the financing yet, it's not being constructed uh as of as of yet. So and there's quite a few of those projects that are uh in Australia and, and around the world. Um, when we think about new capacity, we we have a very kind of regimented approach. We need to see, um, you know, environmental uh, permits and approval. We need to see uh, a certain level of financing secured, a certain level of offtake secured and things like that. So, so we don't have any Australian projects uh, on the nitrogen front uh, in our kind of base case capacity forecast uh, over the next five years or so, but it is an area that we are watching very, very closely, uh, it would really depend on um, how uh, kind of policy and, and the direction of the uh, Australian gas market, which has been quite a controversial topic, I would say, over the last uh, however many years. Uh, but yeah, that, that's really what's going to be the determining factor in how um, some of these projects uh, So
0: just before we move on to we're going to talk about some other non-ag type of things can you mm-hmm. give us a quick you know i'll time it 30 second summary of uh basically if you're a farmer what you should do or w- what the view is on on prices for the next from now into sort of june fragments sake
1: yep so on the nitrogen front uh our forecasts have uh prices firming uh for the next four to five months essentially through to march uh we see prices international prices coming down a little bit by kind of april may um so it'll be very much uh you know uh, how the kind of how the different fertilizer sellers in in australia determine their replacement costs uh, it was going to be important, but I think prices over the next four or five months are probably going to be the most important for what an Australian farmer is going to pay. Um, and we, like I said, we do expect those to to increase uh, over that time period. On the on the phosphate front, uh, farmers should be expecting to pay significantly more this year for their phosphate than what they were last year. Uh, they were ridiculously low prices last year. The market has balanced itself out uh, very effectively. Um, and we do see much tighter supply in the market this year. So, uh, on the phosphate front, uh, we do think, see things settling or setting off a little bit, but there's definitely more of upside price risk there. So, I think um, based on our forecast, trying to secure that earlier rather than later is uh, perhaps a, um, where we would see the kind of bias at the moment. Yeah. Whereas last year, like you say, like that
0: prices last year were 10-year lows. Yeah. So yeah. but even with
1: the rise that you're expecting,
0: we'd still be talking about low levels
1: compared to the last ten years. Exactly. Yeah, you only have to wind back uh kind of four or five years and again they're they're paying significantly more for that. So still if you look at where <clears> prices are now on a on a ten year chart, they're still pretty cheap.
0: And I think I think one of the other things that Thomas listening to this may find is that even though that we're talking about the DAP prices last year as being extremely low those low prices weren't necessarily actually reflected at that time in Australia. So we may find that the DAP prices are not all that much unchanged at a mm-hmm. local level. Yeah. It, because there's been cheap DAP coming into the country yeah. since the point when farmers didn't actually need to buy it. So it's... Yeah, it, yeah. But it's it's always sort of important to have a, have, have a, a good knowledge of the trend. So, so yeah. the next thing we sort of want to talk to you about, Chris... Is Matt and I have been banging on for a while about trade with China in in terms of agricultural uh, commodities, uh, but you guys have done a little bit of work on the the non-ags, uh, mm-hmm. so your iron ore and your coal, which are obviously important commodities for us as a nation. Yeah. What What, what are you guys finding? Because we we obviously we know. Let's not talk too much about the ag ones because. It's we been, always do <laughs> it's, been, it's, been, it's been it's been it's been done to death and look you can read about it on yeah. any sort of any sort of analytical website you or you can read it on your favorite analytical website whoever that may be yeah uh, so so what's happening in, in in this sort of the big mineral spaces
1: yeah it's it is something that is uh also capturing lots of uh the, the attention of lots of analysts Um, and you know we're talking uh, some pretty substantial volumes of of trade between the two countries when it comes to uh, a commodity like iron ore um, you know you're you're talking about some exceptionally large volumes in the kind of tens of of million tons Um, you know and I was in Australia in 2008 when the global great global uh, financial crisis happened and we got through relatively unscathed because we were, um, we were able to keep selling our commodities to China. And if you look at Chinese iron ore, you know, the, the Chinese economy has been very resilient this year. Uh, we've seen exceptionally strong demand for all commodities, um, you know, from you know, corn and soy, like you guys talk about on a, on a daily basis, through to iron ore as well. Um, because the the stimulus measures that have been put in place by the Chinese government encourage their industrial producers to continue pumping out things like steel. So that's been supportive for their iron ore demand, and Australia supplies 50% of China's iron ore. So if there are restrictions uh, put on iron ore, uh, that's, that's... going To be a huge disconnection to what's going on in the Chinese economy at the moment and make things considerably more expensive, and the price of iron ore has skyrocketed this year as well. Uh, because you know, the supply uh, in which China and the global market is relying on is, is Australia and it's also Brazil, and there's been a number of production issues in, in Brazil uh, this year that have you know really cause that. It's been a combination of that strong Chinese demand, but also the, the issues of supply in Brazil that have caused that iron ore price to soar well over $100 a tonne. So iron ore is already expensive. And if China's going to put on like on you know big volume bans of, of that raw material from Australia or put in big restrictions, that's only going to see their uh, domestic iron ore price move higher. Yeah, because we quite often
0: hear you know, you you look on sort of Twitter and you and you well, quite often see people saying, well, if they're going to ban our wine, mm. we won't uh, sell them the iron ore. we always <laughs> them the iron ore, and I sort of think, geez, if we do that, what will the economy do then? It would be a absolute disaster. It would be like, yeah, it would be, it would be like banning Scotch whiskey from Scotland to China. It would it yeah. would des- decimate the economy. Yeah. <laughs> so, but because cause we are like on coal as well. Like we we saw some reports in the news i think there's 80 vessels mm-hmm. off off the coast of china waiting for 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 permits to export or something along that lines But that's clearly another sort of concern as well that
1: yeah yeah the coal market is again it depends on the type of coal that uh china is is importing there's different types of uh coal which are used in different processes <clears throat> um and again, you know, very much related to, to the steel making process. So we, coking coal, um, which again is, is used in steel. Again, Australia is responsible for, you know, so far this year, they've they've been responsible for 60% of China's coking uh, coal imports. So again, if you're whacking on big bands, um, then it's only going to make that process more expensive. However, China... So, uh, I think it's fair to say the largest coal producer in the world and producing lots of their own internal coal and lots of different types of coal, which is where some of those uh, import uh, restrictions are a bit more exposed, I guess. Mm. So it really depends on the type of coal that you're talking about. But again, broadly, there's there's still a very large reliance on Australian coal.
0: So, so ags, ags have been quite heavily, heavily hit by various sort of trade restrictions in, in mm-hmm. recent months and weeks uh it partially sort of Matt and I think that in the background it, part of it is the phase one deal with the uh with the u s with them trying to sort of meet the thirty six point five billion u s dollar mm. requirements uh so so we want Matt and I probably weren't all that surprised by any of them in fact, we're probably mm-hmm. more surprised there hasn't been more commodities, and we sort of point towards almonds as the one that we think is probably next next mm-hmm. most yeah. at risk. Yeah. And yeah. uh, but in terms of from, from from your guys' analysis, do you actually think there is a risk for them placing like major restrictions on things like iron ore or coal, or is it like they are reliant on them?
1: Yeah, we we think the risk is is relatively low with these commodities in which they're reliant on, and it's a similar thing with gas as well. Uh, with natural gas, Australia sends a lot of natural gas into into China. Um, you know, and and China's got lots of investment in Australian natural gas projects as well. Um, so we think because of that, and because of the the lack of other supply options, particularly in the in the shorter term, um, we think that it's likely there will be heavy, heavy uh, import restrictions that are being uh, put in place, like there have been in some of the. The ag markets and and that may be to the detriment of, of ag as well uh if there's if you're in a commodity where there's lots of other supply sources and lots of kind of trade competition uh, then you're likely to be uh, a bit more exposed i guess
2: i think um they've been very strategic when it comes to which australian commodities they've picked or picked on, for, I guess is a better description. Um, mm. And if you look at when um, when China and the US were having a bit of a, a, a trade tussle, and there were tariffs slapped on commodities, if you remember Andrew, they were very strategic in what they targeted then as well. Um, you know, commodities that were very much in the heartland of, kind of voter, a uh, Trump voter territory, were were the ones they picked on there just to, mm. to make an impact. Uh, um, so, and I think we see it too with like they're a big, they're a big importer, China, of our sheep meat product. And again, same scenario you know you 've only really got ourselves in New Zealand to supply the world sheep meat product um so that's another one that's you know been reasonably unscathed uh, you know whereas beef they can kind of go to plenty other places, so you know wine they can go to plenty other places um seafood there's there's plenty of other so it's, um, yeah it's been very very um targeted in my
0: view mm. and and the other thing as well is I guess Australia's got a coalition government which part of a coalition is the nationals, which are obviously a a country party. And when it does make a lot of noise when they ban an agricultural product Mm. and it it does get straight to the heart of of the government. And I think that's what we saw in the US, like the the soybeans, huge part of um, Trump's voter base makes sense. If if we were in their boats, we'd probably do exactly the same. Mm. And like I just think it's, but I don't necessarily think the Australian government's doing a particularly good job of, you know, diplomacy at the moment. Yeah. Uh, and and it's not and it's not just China, India, yeah. Qatar. You know, even even the Brexit one doesn't seem to be going all that well in yeah. terms of. Getting
1: I I, w- I would I would add on that as well, Andrew. I mean I think that. That soybean example is a great uh, case in point where there isn't a huge amount of supplier diversification. China's getting its soybeans and you know, 80, 90 million tonnes of the stuff from Brazil for six months of the year and then traditionally the US for the other six months of the year. And they're, you know, they can source a bit from Russia, a bit from Ukraine, but nowhere near to, to the volume. And you know, again, there's a perfect storm of events that have happened to, to cause uh, kind of... Feed prices to go up to the levels that they have in in China now, but I think I do think that those trade restrictions with the US are probably a fairly large contributing factor to that. So it's it kind of gives a bit of context. You you do wonder whether the the Chinese government has been burnt by that a little bit, or you know, kind of uh, looking to um, make sure that that sort of thing doesn't happen again, and being a bit more strategic in, in which commodities it it puts some um, restrictions in place for. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I reckon, and that's and that's the thing. I think China, as every country has its faults, but definitely one thing that's not a fault in China, is the ability to plan in longer terms. Whereas Western governments tend to have a planning cycle of about twelve to eighteen months, whereas China seems to have what they got the ten-year plans. And the twenty year next plans. Ne-
1: next uh, next five year plan is is next year, I think. So um, that's that's their big kind of uh, flagship uh, announcement and, and what they're going to be doing. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they come out with there. And I
0: think that's yeah. Well, I think that will be that will be interesting because I think the world has changed quite a lot even mm-hmm. in the past two to three years. Yeah. And and even even looking at like from a point of view of the us relations with china i don't expect that to fall necessarily all that quickly uh, even with biden which i'm probably one of the few people that think that it won't just automatically turn rosy between the two countries
1: yeah uh, I, I think we we share that view as well andrew um, that we you're not going to see a relaxation in in those tensions all of a sudden um it is going to take a while to iron out a, a number of those issues yeah.
0: So, I guess that's probably to the end of what we were looking to cover off on. Anything else to add, Chris? Or, um,
1: I, I get a nice little anecdote that kind of ties in this this conversation, um, but that perhaps might kind of give something some people some food for thought. Um, with you know, I mentioned that uh, China is a marginal producer in in ear and a marginal exporter, and are essentially Uh, one of the main price determinants in the market and they're using coal as their feedstock to produce that urea Uh, and the irony is that with kind of restrictions and and different uh, trade uh, barriers the small or large being put on place in importing coal into China, that's increasing their production costs and is therefore increasing those urea prices somewhat so in a very kind of indirect pattern, these different tensions uh, between Australia and, and China are partly responsible for um, Australian farmers likely paying uh, a little bit more for their urea over the next six months or so. Um,
0: so, so, so if you're a farmer and, and you've not got shares in, in gas or coal companies, you should be encouraging, mm-hmm. encouraging coal and gas exports to China in order yeah. to reduce the price. You know? Indeed keep the boats moving and, yeah uh, yeah and will, cause that will reduce the price that's a good that's a good point uh, and yeah and i guess the next question and maybe it's a podcast for another time is esg in fertilizer companies mm-hmm. because i reckon that's that's the next big one but that's maybe one for another 30 minute episode.
1: <laughs> yeah we could we could talk about that one for days it's uh it's been a a very big trend in not just in fertilizer markets, but all uh, commodity markets and extractive industries this year. Um, so, we're doing loads and loads of work on that, and yeah, very interested to, to hear from you guys what's happening in the kind of ag space in Australia on, on that front.
0: Well, we'll maybe get you on next month and talk about ESG and <laughs> in, uh, in ag and fair. But thanks. More than happy to. But thanks very much, Chris, for for, for coming along and giving us a, an independent view of the fertilizer market uh, again we think it's 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 extremely important and 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 matt and i have been pushing for you know independent analysis in, in all ag markets for 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 a long time uh, so that's why we we speak to you you're our, our uh, i was i was say a local fertilizer, man, but fertilizer correspondent fertilizer correspondent In, <laughs> in uh, we, we didn't we didn't actually we didn't this time we didn't actually cover off on 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 our uh, our fertilizer trades Mm. <laughs> and, uh, and and our, our market for uh, for manure, but we want to keep it independent. Uh, yeah. So, so thanks for coming along. Uh, standard sort of uh, exit. If you like the podcast, share it with your friends and family. If you don't like it, you know, punish them by sharing it with them. <laughs> uh, so, thanks very much, and thanks for coming along, Chris.
1: Thank you very much, guys.
0: Yeah, thanks, Chris. Andrew, see you when you're going mate. Yep. Cheers, mate. Bye.